Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, a remedial course in baseball stats and part of the Pitcher List Podcast Network. I'm your host, expert layman Matt Goodwin, and I'm joined, as always, by your fake baseball economist, Alexander Chase. Joining us for this very special episode is Scott Chu of PitcherList.com. He's going to talk ranks, Alex is going to talk auction, and we are all going to learn how to be right about value. Usually Alex gets honors here, but this time around, how you doing, Scott? I'm doing great, man. Just just excited to be here. I've been potting like crazy the last couple of days, and I'm really excited for this like this different look instead of just talking about, well, let's talk about first base ranks. Not that I don't love that. Just did that on Hacks and Jacks, something you all can check out. But I'm really interested to see how this conversation goes. Well, we're super excited to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Alex, how are things going in your neck of the woods? Great. Not feeling left out or anything at all. <laughs> it sounds like yeah, there might no. be an undercurrent there, Alex. Um, I want to say this up top. Scott Chu is my favorite person in baseball to disagree with. Um, <laughs> oh. When we disagree on someone, it tells me usually that I need to go look again in some meaningful way. And we do it a lot. <laughs> we have a lot of different processes and favorites. Um, I don't know if he knows this, but like I remember um, we'll get into a few of these examples later. But there have been frequent situations where Scott and I have like had alternate opinions in the Pitcherless Discord about people. And I'm like guess I need to go look again. <laughs> um, of course, we're here today, actually, because our processes are so different. And I think that's kind of the nice thing about having someone like him, him here. Yeah, well, and his expertise is not limited, by the way, to just baseball. Uh, Scott happens to be a big fan of curling. And that's where I'd like to start right off the top is to enlighten the people. What What is, what is the... Uh, now, I'm going to just... Uh, an aside here. I love curling, so... I know the basics, but uh, talk to us a little bit, Scott, about uh, this fantastic uh, winter sport. Yeah, so, you know, first, minor correction, I am not at all an expert in fantasy curling, right? I'm the inventor, the creator. I am terrible at it, like, historically bad. It's it's a lot of fun. We actually have an event going on right now for the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. That's the Women's Championship in Canada. It's going on right now. If, if you're ever bored, you can get on you know your ESPN app or whatever. They've got it on ESPN. Or uh, if you're in the States, if you're in Canada, you guys just have it. It's on your TSN. If you're in the States, you can actually watch it if you have an ESPN subscription through your cable provider or whatever. And uh, we have this great fantasy curling thing. So it goes through a site called Curling Zone, which is sort of like the it's like the fan graphs of curling, so to speak, the the baseball reference of curling. Uh, there's advanced curling stats. We got all kinds of fun stuff. The game itself is set up sort of like DFS. You pick, you know, in this case, it was up to five teams. Stay under the salary cap. We assign teams uh, a budget amount based on the number of points. It's been really weird because just like every other sport, curling has been, you know, sort of thrown in this crazy situation because of COVID and, and curling is really interesting because unlike the sports that we're like, we're going to be talking about baseball and baseball players are professional baseball players. Their job is to play baseball. That is not how it works in curling. Curling. There are very few full-time professional curlers. There are some, right? But for the most part, they have other jobs. They have other lives. There are, it's not uncommon for people to not make it to a big curling event because they couldn't get off work for the week and a half or whatever they need to be there. So it's, but it's really exciting. It's a lot of folks who are really passionate about a game. And the nice thing about curling is you can watch it without knowing a lot necessarily. They tell you a bit. And like, mm-hmm. I've, I started playing last year and I know a little bit, but I'll tell you, it doesn't help me a lot in terms of watching other than I know a little earlier about whether that shot was good or not. 
But at the end of the day, like fantasy <laughs> curling is fun because it gives you a reason to root for this thing that you kind of want to watch anyway. You know, we're hoping to have this for the Olympics and curling ends up being like 70% of the broadcast during the Olympics uh, for winter Olympics. It's like on the most it's everywhere. Oh yeah. I watched so much of it. I remember in the last winter Olympics, um, I mean, it was really complicated to figure out who to root for in some cases. Uh, I'm a Canadian citizen who hasn't lived there in two decades. Uh, so it was who I really, who really just, I wanted to annoy most in the room at the time, I feel. <laughs> but um, how, do, how do your exact allegiances and uh, friendships work out with that? So, you know, at, at the Olympic level, I'd be really tempted to root for whoever represents America, probably Team Schuster, but could be someone else, right? They, they do play in to, to get there. I really like Schuster. Awesome. Won the gold medal in the last winter Olympics. It's it's a lot of fun, but uh, I'll be really torn if for, you know, if somehow team McEwen wins the briar that year, uh, team McEwen's a team in uh, Canada. And my favorite curler is Colin Hodgson, a guy that I've been able to make friends with. He's, he's an excellent curler. He's just an excellent guy overall. He's like a chef. He's done modeling for like the men of curling calendar. Cause there's a men of curling and women's of curling calendar <laughs> that comes out. Uh, th- those are a lot of fun, but it's, it, that'll be hard because like, I know this guy now. Right. And, and probably the most fun thing about, you know, just to wrap up fantasy curling. One of the most fun things about it is that pro curlers play like they're they're They play the events. Colin plays all the time. He picks himself. We've actually had pro curlers win the tournament like have the best picks. And it was funny because like my, my wife made this little, um, this Amigurumi baby Yoda, uh, before he had a real name, it was still baby Yoda. And the guy that won was like on a team in the event. Right. So he had to be like, uh, I won, but I don't think I can take the prize. Cause <laughs> I, 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 I'm in the tournament. And like the, it's just the coolest thing for me. Like I, I wish I could be in a fantasy sport and be like, I pick me. Like that's, I, that's <laughs> yeah, my pick. Right. I pick me. <laughs> I, I would not want that personally because, um, I would lose twice in the same day probably, <laughs> but I do appreciate the, the want there. <laughs> Thank you for indulging my, uh, my natural curiosity there about curling. Like I said, it's, it's my favorite thing to watch during the Olympics. I didn't realize it was so popular because I, uh, I have been teased mercilessly for wanting to watch curling. Uh, but I think it's amazing. So thank you again for indulging that. Uh, and we're going to segue here into um, our segment that we do on, on Dugout Study Hall, our, our number of the week. And uh, a lot of you probably know that, that PitchCon just wrapped up. And uh, so our number of the week is related to that. It is $10,366 that was raised for Feeding America uh, fantastic event, uh, just an unbelievable slate of pre- uh, presenters and presentations, uh, two of which happen to be put on by the two of you. So, Alex, I'm going to start with you here, and if you could just talk for a moment uh, about what it was that you presented, and then, Scott, we'll have you follow up with uh, with what you shared with the people. So I tried to wedge together two things that uh, don't on their face actually seem like they matter at all together. Um, I talked about first and foremost, like stat design and like how to be right, how to avoid bias and stats a little bit. And then I talked about um, hard contact and I kind of wrapped this all together because I care about these things and people talk about hard contact in some ways don't quite make sense if you're like trying to build stats well. Uh, So basically my presentation was how to be right about hard contact. Um, And uh, for those of you guys who listen to us, we'll probably have a conversation that sounds a whole lot 
like that here in the coming weeks. Yeah, and I was a big fan of that. Alex was great. You're really talking about the math and the underlying numbers. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that for mine because I don't know (laughs) it. Uh, Not a big math guy. Went to law school, not math school. But uh, what what I did talk about was rolling charts, which are available on Fangraphs and on Baseball Savant. And they're really cool because what they show you is this mix, you know, sort of like two things that do go together. It mixes sort of sample size and performance at one time. And it shows you, for example, the last 50 or the last one, you know, there's points on the on the graph, on the chart. And each point is their, you know, their stat over the last 50 plate appearances or 15 games or, you know, whatever it is you set it to. And it's really cool to find the trends in those, you know, in those charts where, you know, for a really good example that's easy to use, if you look at Mike Moustakis and you go, oh, wow, his his strikeout rate was elevated in 2020. Uh, what what do I do with that? I mean, he is getting older. He swings hard. What happened there? Well, if you look at the rolling chart, you get a much better story than the single stat that popped out at the end of the year. The single stat that pops out is like 22 point something strikeout rate. But when you look at the rolling mm-hmm. chart, it starts up at 30. And by the end of the season, his 50 plate appearance rolling, you know, his last 50 plate appearance strikeout, it's like 10 and it's like straight down the whole mm-hmm. year. So he struggled a brand new narrative instead of this narrative. That's based on his strikeout rate was up. Let me find reasons. Oh, he got pitched more breaking balls. He struggled with those breaking balls a bit. Oh, maybe he's starting to struggle with breaking balls. No, mm-hmm. the narrative is much better using the rolling chart. Cause you go, Oh, he just started rough, which COVID 2020, all kinds of weirdness. <laughs> he started rough. Oh yeah. And just got, better and better and better as the season went on in terms of strikeout rate. And so I really just talked about how to use those charts to build better narratives, more informed narratives than simply, Oh, he had the worst, whatever of his career for the season. It's like, yeah, but he kind of didn't. Right. Cause what if we had played more than 60 games? I bet that strikeout rate stabilizes itself. Right. It might've come back up a little, you know, the chart went straight down. It's not going to do that until it gets to like zero, but it, it come back up and down. But with more time, it's really easy to see how that strikeout rate gets better instead of just relying on end of season stats based on different things, you just don't get enough of the story. And it, I tried to relate it to how we actually play fantasy baseball, right? Like we play it by feeling those trends, but once the season's over, we forget about them. We forget what, how those players struggled, right? It's a guy we're almost certainly going to talk about later is Alberto Mondesi. And this is really easy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is really easy to like, we, we remember what that felt like because there was only two things to feel really, really bad than really good. Mm -hmm. But other players were more dynamic than that. So it, it was, it's fun to use those charts to sort of understand what that season actually felt like. I feel like bringing up, uh, Mondesi is just like chumming the waters for a fantasy analysts to yell at each other. Um, so I'm really excited for us to not do that too much. Uh, but I do definitely want to hear how you sort through some of those difficult problems kind of with that sort of mindset that we kind of do need to build like a, a better, more accurate picture. I feel like that's a very like not math inclined, but same end goal inclined sort of way of looking at things that I was kind of talking about. Well, and I think that's one of the, the nice taglines that you had with your, your presentation, Scott, was uh, that it is, it's not predictive, but it's incredibly descriptive. So moving away from necessarily the math trends, uh, but it does provide evidence for a narrative that you're not going to get in any other way. Yeah, and that was really, that, that's always a very important point to make. So few stats are truly predictive, mm-hmm. right? They they can be, but baseball is a game full of change, right? 
guys don't get pitched the same every time they go up. Heck, in the same game, they don't get pitched the same and one at-bat to the next, even if it's the same pitcher. Baseball's full of changes, full of adjustments, right? And the cool thing about the rolling charts and really just think about baseball in general is you can see how those adjustments happen. And are they able to make adjustments or do players simply continue to struggle? Because when when we, the fantasy analyst, fantasy player, whoever, when we identify something like a weakness, you can bet your bottom dollar that MLB teams know about it already and are trying <laughs> to exploit it. Because if we can see it, they can see it, right? And the player knows about it. The player knows about their own weakness because teams scout themselves. How is that player adjusting? Are they adjusting? Right. So it's, it's really cool to watch those charts and see, is that happening? How is that happening? How do we correlate like real life events and these charts? But you know, I could go on on this forever. And I did right for like 40 something minutes. <laughs> and if, I, I do want to just say not to steal your thunder, Matt, if anyone wants to watch these, they're out They're on YouTube, right? You can go to YouTube. You can watch any presentation from PitchCon. So just go ahead and pitch. Like, I think if you just YouTube like PitchCon uh, 2021, they're out there. So I, I encourage you to go do that, especially if you just want to like, kill some time listen you weren't able to do it when we had the event live you're going to do it now it's some of the best free content for fantasy baseball on the internet right now absolutely and and what we'll do is we'll make uh some links in the show notes there for both of the presentations for both of you uh but there's so much content that that was uh put forth there and yeah you make a great point it's the best free content that you're going to find out there um now what we, we uh, have going on today in the title of our episode and our central question is kind of the best way to capitalize on value in draft. So um, one of the things that you do for Pitcher List and that you've done is write 70 bajillion words here for the 6.0 launch on hitters uh, and doing ranks. So if you could just talk for a moment, and uh, you know we have plenty of time to get into the weeds on this, but just talk for a moment on that process and, um, you know, how you kind of go through figuring out who's where. Yeah. So I think the first thing I do is I bang my head on my keyboard for about 30 minutes and then just let autocorrect do the rest. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's same actually. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's actually, it, it's a lot harder than you think. The very, the very first thing you have to figure out is what starting point am I going to use? Am I going to use ADP and then move guys around based on how I value them? Am I going to use projections? Which projections am I going to use? And, and the auction values that come out on those projections, am I going to do that? What am I going to start with? And actually, that's the route I went. I I got some projection systems that I liked, mm-hmm. put them sort of together, see where the values spit out, and then sort of played with it a little and go, okay, so I actually like this guy a little more bump them up a little you there's natural tiers that happen and you can sort of move guys around in there where's the adp right like thinking about first base there's three first basemen that have adps within like five six picks of each other really so if you think about like vlad guerrero jr luke voigt and um pete alonzo they go really tight so Mm -hmm. how do you distinguish between them and that's really how you get to 70 bajillion words which is a pretty accurate figure i think if you count them (laughs) one by one and when, when you're doing it, you think, how am I distinguishing this guy over this guy? And some of it, you, you, you kind of cop out a little and be like, look, if you want to take, you know, if you want to take Guerrero over Pete Alonzo because you like the upside, go ahead. Like, I'm not going to begrudge you about a single spot, but at some point you do have to rank them. Mm-hmm. You do like in a real draft. That might be what you have to do is split hairs over these two guys. So what is cool about making ranks is you go through that process of, okay, I've got these two guys. I have always valued them similarly. How do I make the call? How do I make the pick? 
right? Because in a real draft, you will, right? It's not just going to automatically, like a lot of your picks aren't just slapping you in the face going, oh, well, this is clearly the best first baseman on my board. It's going to be two guys that are right next to each other and you want one of them because they're not going to come back and you've got to make the call. So the, what I love about the exercise and thinking about value is how do you do that? How do you do that for two players that are very similarly ranked who offer similar types of stats, right? So how do I do that? And I think we'll, we'll have some fun getting into that today. Yeah, definitely. I think that's something we can all relate to in our drafts, right? You know, the clock is ticking, especially if it's not a slow draft. You got two minutes, you got 90 seconds, you got 30 seconds. All of a sudden you're at 15 who am I going with? So I think that's certainly relatable. And then on the flip side of doing ranks, uh, Alex, you've created an auction value estimator, which uh, creates ranks in a way, uh, but there are some differences obviously there. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you've created and, and how you go through your process? So um, I'm going to like let anyone who's listening to this um, take a deep breath and that I'm not going to just tell you how i do it mathematically but i can tell you what i do like if we replace all of the numbers with like human words that a a fifth grader can understand for the most part um my problem i'm trying to solve with the auction tools i've created are um trying to figure out how you should draft in roto leagues um having realized that all of the tools for auctions that we've built for roto leagues are broken um before I started writing for Picture List, there was a fun Twitter interaction that I had with Scott, actually, of all people, <laughs> about how stupid the ESPN Player Raider was, and that kind of got me going in a lot of this direction, made me curious about why rankings work the way they work on like an automated mm-hmm. way. Um, and it did some more explanation. There were some actually underlying value problems with the Fangraphs auction calculator or with like the Razzball auction calculator that are, I mean, they're pretty good, but we can do better. And their big problem is that they ignore playing time like in terms of the number of games mm-hmm. that you're playing not in terms of, and like as well as the number of pas you're getting there's like here are the outputs how much is that worth and it turns out that um if you put up the same stats in 80 games as someone else did in 160 that matters mm-hmm. um so my goal was basically to try to figure out a way to uh, evaluate how good people were on a per game basis and then if you're only going to play 120 games because you're going to be out for the first 40 games of the year, like, uh, I don't know, uh, you got divorce court or, you know, like um, your your dog's lost and you got to go look for him and you're going to come back just fine. Like, how do we estimate someone's value that way? Um, and I basically just assume that you're going to set your lineups at all, which Fangraphs doesn't. And so I just replace it with, like, how good your bench is going to be for most of those games. Not all of them, most of them. Um, and then, like, I figure out how bad it is to have, like, your spot be empty and i plug that back in and the end result is um you get like a somewhat fairer ranking that doesn't wildly swing based off of playing time reproductions um and allows us to like actually figure out where people should land people who make ranks by hand typically don't get as caught up in those like all right this guy's predicted for 152 games sort of things they're like yeah i think he's gonna play a lot or a little and I feel like some of like the hard quants can struggle with this question. I try to get away from some of the blind spots that people like me can have, and that people like um, Scott are, you know, writing words on their keyboard about as they try to inform you. Um, there's a Tableau page I have also that lets people like literally plug in their like fake projections and figure out what number, like money would come from that. If you want to play with that, it's out there. 
So we're going to get into some players here in in a minute, but uh, I want to throw this question out to both of you, and uh, I'll let you guys fight in the pit for who gets to go first. Uh, but where do you think your process uh, provides maybe an edge over the others? You know, where where do ranks fill gaps that maybe auction values don't, uh, and where do auction values maybe uh, solve problems that ranks don't? We're going to play rock paper scissors for this uh, here in our Zoom to figure out who has to go first because. Uh, um, I, I want to play rock, paper, scissors. So this is great for podcasting. People love it when you do something <laughs> visual that they can't see while they're listening. Go for it. Also, just to be clear, is there going to be a shoot? Is it going to be rock, paper, scissors or rock, paper, scissors, shoot? This sounds like we need to like it on someone else's podcast and argue about this. Let's go with shoot. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Okay. Two, three, shoot. Uh, Scott wins for those of you listening in your cars and on your headphones. I'm not going to lie. I, I tried to pick scissors so I could lose, so I could think about how I'm going to answer this. But uh, the one nice thing about ranks versus auction values is number one, unless you're a math person like Alex, mm-hmm. it's hard to do auction values on your own, right? It's it's very difficult to come up with the numbers that you need. You're going to often rely on other people's projections, and I like those. I really do because auction values can tell you the difference. You know, the one thing where rank like where I like rankings is that they're very intuitive. Right. Mm-hmm. I rank them this way and yeah. I can use tiers and things like very intuitive, very easy to use. And when you're on tight clocks, you need to be able to use something that's easy to use and you can sort mm-hmm. of look across the board where they fall a little short is they don't necessarily tell you the difference between like, is there a big gap between number two and number three? Right. Mm-hmm. That's where rankings fall a little short. And that's where you really like, you can't do ranks without doing tiers. Right. And we do this in the picture list rankings. You got to have tiers so that you understand, you know, tiers are a little arbitrary because at some point you just have to draw a line. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I could have made many more tiers than I did in the picture list rankings, but I, I don't have 17 titles for you know, ranking tiers and they're no longer helpful at that point. So mm-hmm. I have to make some kind of tier that's really important. So I like rankings cause they're intuitive, but you got to pair them with tiers to, to sort of make up for some of that downside of not explaining, is there a gap between two and three? Is there a gap between 12 and 15 or what is the gap between, you know, like eight and 14? Is that the same gap as between one and two? How do you know, mm-hmm. right? You got to have those tiers. Yeah, um, I, I definitely feel like uh, for outfield, for example, um, the gap between like the 10th and the 20th best outfielder is pretty huge, actually, uh, in terms of like what my system's going to spit out. I can I can go and find that. I will do that because I'm curious. Uh, so if I like sort by outfield, um, I'm going to get a mask because I can't type. But yeah, like Eli Jimenez is the guy who spit back as like my 10th best outfielder comes back at about like a $23 projection in this specific league settings I'm calculating. Whereas a 20th best outfielder at Whit Merrifield is the guy that's coming out. He's going to come out at like 12 bucks. Um, do not fight me over those particular rankings and dollar amounts. It's, it's pretty arbitrary, but like then if you want to find out like the guy who's another $10 away, like that's going to be so, so many ranks away. Uh, we're looking at like, um, yeah, like this is for five outfielder, 12, team yeah it looks like ramon loriano is going to be like the two dollar guy in this situation so it's it's tough it's really tough um this is three outfielder i should say i was i lied to myself um but yeah like and that's actually a thing where i think dollar values can be confusing is like they don't translate well um Mm -hmm. but as long as someone's using ranks responsibly right so you know that like 
the the gaps are bigger at the top of the ranking chart. Um, those sorts of tiers also help to demarcate. And eventually, you know, when you're charting between like the 55th and the 56th best guy, like how do you make that decision? <laughs> like um, if you're trying to like split the difference between, um, yeah, who are, who are some guys that you, ha- you, you had some trouble um, kind of splitting hairs with towards the bottom of your board? I mean, I, I can still in my mind move guys around everywhere right especially Mm -hmm. when you get after you know the way i have it set up is uh after tier seven which is uh about 60 outfielders right the first Mm -hmm. 60 outfielders are in seven tiers after that holy cow is it easy to move guys around especially in a three outfielder setting which our rankings are set up for they're meant for 12 team leagues three outfielders to utility you start getting to a point where it's like yeah this guy you could rank um you know so joe adele is ranked 67th and Jared Klenick, he's 66. Right. And so they're both in tier eight. Here's the question in some form, like depending on how you've built your team up into that point, those guys have very different, you know, those two types of players, these prospects have very different values for you. If you've already taken a lot of risks, Joe Adele and Jared Klenick probably just fall off your board. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I've already got, I've Mm -hmm. already got all the risk. I need safe. Right. I need, that's where, you know, Corey Dickerson becomes very valuable because, yeah, I mean, not so much in a three outfield, but like you're in a five outfield league. I need a guy who I know is going to play, who I know, like I can, I can just write in the numbers right now. I know what they're going to do. So that's one thing that happens where like guys move a ton just in the draft itself because you no longer require their services. Right. And also, you know, you're building certain stats, right. And, Oh, I've already got a ton of home runs. So why would I ever care about Randall Grychik at this point? Right. I don't need what he provides. Right. You don't anyway. And that, you know, you can see why in the article, (laughs) but uh, because I don't think he's going to play, but the the thing is, let's say he was, what if you don't need those home runs anymore? What's the point, right? You need other stats. Most likely if you've already loaded up on all this power, you need other stats potentially. So why go after Grijic, right? He's not going to steal bases. He's not going to hit for a high average. If you need those things, you need to look elsewhere for them. And and that's where your know, rankings become extremely fluid. Like they're, they're pretty easy early on. Then it's like, oh, uh, I'll rank this guy here, but you might not need him at all, right? By this point <laughs> in the draft, you just might not need him. So if that's the case, just drop him off your board. It's no yeah. big deal. What you're speaking to there, I think, is is the adaptability you need to have in a draft, right? Uh, whether you're using auction uh, values or you're using ranks, um, what you've built so far, what other teams have built so far, people left on the board is going to dictate a lot of the strategy in the middle of the draft. And um, maybe talk a little bit to that. You know, what what's the role of your ranks maybe a third of the way through a draft? I can actually make this pretty quick. These ranks are in this weird place. Like you sort of think of them in a vacuum, right? In a vacuum, this is what the ranks are. Newsflash, by the time the 70th outfielder is available, there is no more vacuum. You have a team. You have a whole team. You have a real context that you need to use now. So I put these guys in ranks down there to sort of group them together based on, you know, a pseudo value, right? Like, ah, these guys are all kind of close for me. Now, your actual situation will dictate whether or not you like you care about what I'm saying, whether or not they uh, these really apply. Do you need to take this risk or need someone safer or, you know, hey, you know, we've got we've got guys at, at the very end. Right. So uh, 
uh, trying to think of a good example, like uh, Nomar Mazzara, right? Right now he's ranked 99th because mm-hmm. I do think he's going to play in Detroit. But again, he only provides a certain type of stat, right? He, he will hit for some power. He could get some counting stats, right? But if you need steals, at this point, you are just completely ignoring Nomar Mazzara. And you need to start looking at a guy who, I mean, he is ranked higher, but like a John Birdie, right? If you don't mm-hmm. need steals, if steals aren't valuable in your league, John Birdie, almost undraftable, right? Because his mm-hmm. value is driven by his stolen bases. So, you know, while you're in your draft, everyone's going to have their own approach to how they address very specific things. Stolen bases is one of them, right? And you always have to be able to pivot. You know, like I, you know, toot my own horn here. I got ninth in TGFBI back in 2019. And I did it by punting steals, but not because I planned on punting steals. It was because I was seven, eight rounds into a 15-team draft and realized I had none and there were none available. Mm -hmm. So I had to pivot and go, okay, well, I guess we're not doing that anymore. Stolen bases are just not going to be a thing. I'm going to have to draft for the rest of my team. And it worked out and I got a little lucky, but that's sort of how you have to look at rankings in general. It's like, okay, at some point I'm going to realize like, oh, you know what? I got two outfielders early because I liked the value where I was picking and I'm going to skip a whole chunk of outfielders in my rankings because I'm just going to be addressing other positions, right? Um, I'm just going to ignore them. Yeah, I have this guy ranked above this third baseman, but I no longer need outfield, especially in like a three outfield league. You fill up those three outfield Mm -hmm. spots pretty quick. So you're not worried about outfield anymore. So you're like, okay, well, I rank this guy overall better, but I'm shifting only to position rankings now. I don't care about overall rankings. And those things just happen. Alex, in terms of auction values, do you think that holds true or does does value last a little bit longer? Whereas I might be looking at different people, right, to fill out my roster, but is value value? So I I think like the demarcation we should really make here is like I'm talking about um, projection input generated auction values, right? This is like the computer says this guy's worth $27.32. And like... You know, the draft board that it makes, all of the same things are going to apply. The difficulties come in, like, um, often what sort of ways I'm going to be wrong. And, like, I am going to be really, really reliant on the inputted playing time projection for uh, Randall Greichuk. Um mm-hmm. Now, I think he's really good. And I think that the chances that someone in that lineup is hurt on April 2nd is pretty high. And he's going to be batting somewhere sixth or higher in that order, potentially, um, five days a week. But it's really hard to, like, actually figure out what number that's going to lead to. Um, So, like, the way that you can talk about risk is better or worse. Now, I think that some of the ways that, like... I calculate and display things. Uh, the same way you'll see, like, Fran graphs is spitting back, like, the number of dollars you're going to get from home runs for Randall Grechuk. Pretty high. Um, you're going to be able to want to work from that sort of point of view. Maybe you're um, 200 picks in. Uh, you're struggling in steals. So you actually sort... Um, even if you're using like a Fangraphs auction calculator, just click the experimental box, please, God, <laughs> click that box. Um, but yeah, like maybe you'd like you have it up, you sort by that number, and you're like, okay, here are the guys who are going to get me a lot of steals value, and I just want to make sure that I'm drafting among maybe the top five here, someone who's still pretty high on my board. Like we're doing the same things um, in terms of like a lot of the broad strategy. We're going to miss in opposite directions though, where we rank people maybe. Um, so the guy that's on my board maybe not won't be John Birdie. Um, 
but I like John Birdie and I want to own him in a couple well, can, teams. Let's let me, if you could indulge me for a moment. Let's talk about him uh, because I think that he is a really good example of where value shifts quickly, right? And we mm. talked about him in terms of ranks, but what do you have him for on your estimator in terms of auction value? Uh, he comes back at negative four dollars. Uh, he's estimated only um, 111 games played, so a, a lot of his uh, value is actually just like zeros hurting him on a per game um, basis. Yeah, he's like a bench guy, um, but he's a bench guy I want to own because I want to plug him in in because I'm not going to be drafting a whole lot of people who are going to get as many steals because I hate stolen bases. So John Birdie's dual eligibility makes him a really good bench guy for me to watch and see when's he going to be in that lineup, when's he going to get a favorable matchup. I want to be cycling him maybe in and on and off my roster, but like, I like him. So based on that negative $4, you're talking about somebody who's undraftable, but for somebody who needs steals late in, in their draft, that dollar value has to shift, right? Yeah, that's the sort of like thinking you're doing. He's the guy that makes the assumptions I make possible. He's the stolen base getter who's going to go late in drafts, maybe hurt you a little bit if you're building up a bunch of surplus value elsewhere. Uh, it's just like on a per-game basis. Um, his batting average, totally going to be neutral. His home runs, going to hurt you. His RBI, going to hurt you. His runs, we'll see. Actually, depending on where he'll be end up in the lineup. If he's high in the lineup, I think um, the ATC projection I'm relying on for this output We'll miss a little bit in runs per game. I also kind of think the Marlins are going to be okay next year. Um, but his stolen base value, um, he's helping you more in steals uh, than he hurts you in any other category. Uh, not combined, but like these three standard deviations above the mean in terms of stolen base value on a per-game basis. That's really good. We're talking 26 steals in 111 games. Um, I would be really interested in a world where John Birdie is playing well enough to get everyday playing time also. That's another thing. It's really hard to model, right? Like, what if he's having a good season? He's going to play more too. Right. It's, it's just so hard, right? So I, I want to bring this up because I think a lot of people um, that might be listening at home are like, you know, I, I don't do auction drafts, so I don't need auction values. Or I only do auction drafts, so I don't need ranks. Uh, Scott, I want to throw this to you first, and I know I'm putting you a little bit on the spot here, but uh, where do maybe ranks help somebody who's going into an auction draft? And then, Alex, I'm going to throw it to you or vice versa. What's really cool about using ranks in an auction draft is your ranks might not match up with how those projected auction values turn out, right? So when you do that, you can say, okay, I have this guy ranked as my fourth best first baseman but I do not need to pay fourth best first baseman prices for that, right? So mm -hmm. your rankings can really help inform how you do this for how you find the value, right? Like I have him as the fourth best first baseman, but I'm only going to have to pay seventh best first baseman value, right? So that's my rank, but I also have to know what the like what the projection auction ranks are because if you don't think your teammates are going into that draft without auction values, you're crazy. They are. Mm -hmm. They are going to use a free auction value tool Probably if you're in any kind of competitive league, they're going to do that. You need to know what they say. And then you need to know where you disagree with them, right? You need to know where you diff your values differ. So yeah, I'm, I can't think of a guy off the top of my head. That's a super big shift, but you know, for example, these most projection systems as Alex, you know, really intelligently pointed out, they don't ever assume you're going to set your lineup. They think you're just going to plug the guy in and get mm -hmm. the value. You're going to do it all year. 
that's not how fantasy baseball works. Because if it was, right. I wouldn't get so many DMs and questions and comments about <laughs> how to set my lineup, right? Yeah, we'd launch the season <laughs> and then Twitter would just be silent all year. Right. So um, you you have to know that like, okay, so they're do that. And they're also really sort of slanted towards deeper leagues. They don't handle shallow leagues very well because they can't see a reason why you'd ever bench that guy. Right. They, they can't, they have a really hard time understanding replacement value and Mm -hmm. replacement value changes a lot based on league size. So if I'm in a 12 teamer with three outfielders, I know that I'm never going to overpay. Like I call it overpay. I'm never going to have bids up like higher for, a outfielder. I might not even ever go to the values that my auction calculator spits out. What I will do is I'll look at my rankings and I'll say, okay, who's my highest ranked outfielder left. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and it might be different than what the projection dollar amounts say, because maybe I have a different playing in time interpretation. Maybe I think the ceiling's better. The last thing I'll say is rankings. It's easier to sort of talk about this upside a player has dollar values for auction calculators are based on a specific projection, Right. And, and they're based on averages, right? Yeah. And so yeah. what they can't do, no projection will tell you the ceiling for a guy, right? Now, a higher you know, a higher projection generally means the floor is pretty good, the ceiling's better, those kind of things, but not necessarily, right? So uh, guys like Pete Alonzo and Matt Olson have a similar projected home run total. However, we also know that if one of those guys is going to hit 50 home runs, it's not going to be Matt Olson. Right. He, he's just going to fall a little short. If I have to pick one, I think it's Pete Alonzo and the projections can't necessarily talk about that. It, they sort of take away this this feel you have. And if you only ever relied on projections, we would all be drafting the same. We don't. We have different rankings because we believe in ceilings more. Right. Mm-hmm. The projections are going to say certain things about Lewis Robert. And, you know, fantasy owners are going to have different feelings about Lewis Robert because they either they they saw the hot streak and think he can get that back or they saw the fall and say, pitchers have figured him out right mm-hmm. and then there's going to be the folks say oh it's somewhere in between and they, they don't pick a side because they're cowards but what's going to happen is yeah. you have to be able to set those rankings you can adjust that in the rankings but you should still know what the auction values are because that's where the value is yeah i i cannot believe how many things that i would want to say you've already said for me <laughs> um but like if you flip the script just a little bit and like i'm i'm gonna sit in a couple snake drafts this year um one of the things that I will often be looking for is just like using values to set my tiers. That's just it. Like, you know, when you see like the, if you're making the list, um, you can just draw the line. Like when the dollar amount jumps by like five or six bucks, I'm like, okay, I want to make sure I walk out of here with a second baseman above this line. And that's how you can kind of set yourself uh, up for like a specific draft plan. Um, Now I would maybe also say that and like, look, these second basemen are going pretty high in the ADP, but their actual values, according to this calculator, aren't that high. And this is actually one of the things we can kind of talk about, like, where you actually find value. I tend to think that just because, you know, the third and fourth best second basemen are kind of iffy, that doesn't mean you need to pay more for them. That means you should be happier to take the end of the bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, you could have gotten... Um, not Lau. Yeah, no. Yes, Brandon Lau. Yeah, I was going to say, like, Josh Lowe? No. Brandon Lau. Playing too much out of the park. Um, <laughs> um, like, late in drafts, like 12th, 13th, second baseman off the board in a lot of situations. And as long as, long as you threw that dart correctly. Big if. But, you know, like, let's say you even throw if. two darts. Because yeah. 
you could you could have thrown two second baseman darts last year. You could have gotten him and someone else towards the end who totally totally busted, um, like uh, in Washington Starling Castro, who got uh, Starlin not Starling Starlin Castro, who got hurt early in the year. If you threw those two darts, you ended up with a good second baseman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm probably going to throw a lot of two second baseman darts in, gra- in drafts rather than paying the premium for Keston Hira or paying the premium for you know someone else high up on those boards because I see the numbers they aren't pretty and I'm just gonna like try to spend my higher valued draft picks in you know like the the 40 to 75 range a little bit differently uh, just because I don't think there's a whole lot to gain there I'll probably buy some pitchers <laughs> well when we've started to to talk a little bit about players and i think that's probably some a place that we should go now because uh, one of the things we like to do here is is do like case studies right where we take a player and we apply our theory and and what we've talked about to actual specific players um you know some things like uh who is somebody who maybe uh was really difficult to rank or somebody who came out of the auction uh estimator uh with a number that just totally threw you um, and we can start with, with whoever you want, but I think a nice person to, to begin with would be Mondesi. We, we talked about him earlier in the show and, um, you know, I'll throw it up in the air again. You guys, I don't think we have time for another rock, paper, scissors tournament here, but, uh, uh, whoever wants to go first and just talk about what your approach is with Mondesi and, um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I just kind of talk about the process uh, that you took related to that player. So, um, my process is really limited. I take the projection in. It says that this is, again, this is ATC from like about a week ago. I, I need to update it. I haven't. Um, so he's projected for 137 games played. That's 571 PAs. Um, he's never going to walk. So it turns into 532 at bats, which is what matters for batting average. Um, you know, we're looking at 15 home runs here. Is 53 stolen bases enough? We'll figure that out as we go. <laughs> um, yeah, a 253 average. Uh, his counting stats are actually pretty meh, also, I should note. People overlook that a lot. We're looking at, like, 78 runs, 63 RBI, because he's just not going to get on base enough. When mm-hmm. he is, he'll steal, but he's just not going to get on base enough. And the net result there is, like, you got someone who's going to be um, pretty good on a per-game basis, but, like, not super, super elite. Um, if you assign all of the weight to these categories equally, which is what I think you should. Um, so he ends up being about a $16 player for me. If he plays more, maybe he'll be a bit better. If he stays healthy, maybe the numbers will also look better. He's tough in that way because his health and his production, I think, are linked. Um, I think his power um, is definitely like part of what's um, happening when he's been kind of on and off hurt. He can still run, but like the other stuff are kind of lingering. So the choices I make are just like, all right, we're going to treat all these categories equally, and that's it. Um, my calculator... Because it assumes all this rationality, though, like, you know, we're all just going to draft the best player and build these teams in this perfect way, uh, can miss a little bit in terms of predicting where Steele's guys go on the board, though. Uh, There's no way that um, he's going to be, you know, like a guy who goes in the $16 range. In case you're wondering, in terms of shortstops overall, uh, Modesty is ninth on my board between Tim Anderson and Glaber Torres, according to this approach. There's no way that he's going to be the ninth shortstop off the board. I imagine he's going closer to Xander, Bogarts, and Bo Bichette. Um, now, I'm going to be buying a guy like uh, Bogarts or Corey Seager, someone in that range probably personally, because that's just who I tend to think my team will look best when I draft. But, you know, 
there's not a whole lot of thought for me. It's just, where's the ADP? Where's the dollar value? Then a line. So what? I guess I'm not buying the high steel guy in this year's draft. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, what I what I'll say is, it's really uh, first the thing that's funny. I did not use Alex's tool at all when I made the rankings, mm-hmm. but I ranked him exactly the same. He is ninth. <laughs> He's in between Tim Anderson and Glaber Torres. Right. That's this a, is hysterical. Exactly how that turned out. And what it probably means is I'm not going to be ending up with Alberto Mondesi. Right. Mm-hmm. And, so we've been having this great conversation uh, in the Pitcherless Discord, which, you know, plug, you should all join. It, it's really awesome. This is actually in the staff part, but we would do this in the regular part, too. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about how do you quantify in a head-to-head league, which the rankings that I created are based on. They're based on a head-to-head league, 12 teams, three outfield. Mondesi's value in a head-to-head league is very different than it is in Roto, because in Roto, every steal counts, Right. It doesn't matter when he gets them. It just matters that he gets them. In head-to-head, it absolutely matters when he got them. Because as it turns out, he had, I believe it was eight weeks of garbage, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, it was like six weeks of like eight total steals, right? That's not winning you this category. In fact, he was just absolutely miserable. He was basically unrosterable in any format for about six to eight weeks. And then he gets all those steals in a three-week period, mm-hmm. three matchups. That's where all those steals come. And in a head-to-head league, a weekly categories league, those steals reset every week, right? Getting 10 steals in one week doesn't help you for the week before or the week after. Right. It's just that you won steals by double this week. Great, awesome. You still only get the one point for it, right? right? So it's really hard to quantify where that value comes in. Uh, in terms of like creating rankings, but it is really important. And, and what can make guys difficult to rank is in a head to head. Cause you can't really quantify the value easily in terms of like, well, this is a guy who could very well get a bunch of those deals in a single time period. And then have these long stretches where he is really not useful for a fantasy manager, right? Because he doesn't have a great batting average. He's not doing counting stats. Even if he was getting on base, he's not going to score that many runs for the Royals, right? That's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it, it, very, very difficult to rank, and it's very team. It, it, you have to drive it based on your own team. The final thing I'll say is when you talk about projections on Mondesi, I'm guessing that if you use like ATC, they, they project like 137 games. Let's be clear that that's 35 more games than he has ever played in a full season, mm-hmm. right? At least at the major league level. He's not done that ever. To get the value, which is heavily driven by stolen bases, which you can only get, of course, when you're playing games, you have to play the games. You have to be there. You have to be doing that. And there's a lot of reasons why Mondesi might not be, right? Injury is a big one. He's really struggled with staying healthy. But all of a sudden, those plate appearances change if they have to bat him ninth because he's being terrible. And I wish that I could say, like, oh, that's an outside chance. That's actually, like, that's a thing that could very well happen because he was so bad for so long last season. So I actually want to flip the script and run in the exact opposite direction. Paul Goldschmidt, where do you have him? And like, how does like talking about someone who seems really understandable work for someone like you? So he's ranked 10th. That's between Matt Olson and Max Muncy. He's in the third tier of outfielders, which is really like towards the end of where you want to have a starter in a 12-team league. What's really difficult with Paul Goldschmidt is... Well, Paul Goldschmidt, Paul Goldschmidt has been a certain type of player for a very long time. And the only thing that had really changed over like a decade was the steals change, right? He stole less. 
And then 2020, his plate approach was totally different. He completely changes. He he has less power, which is hard to understand why that happens in such a small sample, right? Because it's only 60 games. It's hard for some of that stuff to play out. But he walks way more than he ever had before. He basically turns like Vado-esque in a way. Like he starts walking <laughs> oh, a ton. Yeah, very similar. Yeah. So, um, and also similar in terms of like age and the power, like the power coming down, he became very difficult for me to rank because it's like, hey, if he does this and the power comes back, this is a this is a much better first baseman than I'm giving him credit for. If the power stays away, he becomes sort of like just above replacement level in a, you know, in a 12 teamer. Right. Especially in like a Yahoo style where there's no corner. Right. You just got the first base and then he might be one of your two. Like two UT. Yeah. yeah. So it changes his value a lot because like if he's not hitting that many home runs yeah he might get some rbi but all of a sudden he's really hard to distinguish from the dom smiths the alec bohms the josh bells of the world other guys batting in the middle of an order who have some decent play discipline these kinds of things so very difficult guy for me to rank but only because he just sort of came out and decided he was going to be a totally different guy Mm -hmm. see i bring him up because Paul Goldschmidt has another skill set that is really hard for me to knock, but it sounds like I'm knocking it every time I do. And that's that he plays a lot of baseball games. Um, he's projected to be first in uh, games played among NL first basemen uh, with 148. The only guys ahead of him are Abreu. Oh, pardon me. Freeman's in the NL. He's in his league of his own, whatever. Um, <laughs> Freddie Freeman, also just another monster. Um, but Goldschmidt, then, when you're trying to rank him against... Um, Josh Bell, for example, or some other guys in the same general year, uh, like tier, uh, in terms of my dollar rankings, like Mike Moustakas or um, Miguel Sano, he's playing more games. And that makes his counting stats look better on a per game basis than they actually are. Um, I was a big Paul Goldschmidt fade last year. He looked good in some ways. He actually didn't produce a whole lot of value for a whole lot of teams. Um, Because, again, he didn't have any any power. by the way, uh, I think that's because he was walking instead of trying to swing his bat. Um, so I don't think you can have both for him. Um, but all that said, um, I, I find someone like him really tricky at the same time, though, because like um, I really, really want to say that like maybe it is a skill. Maybe his durability is something. Maybe he's just got better running form and catching form and hitting form, and it's so consistent that he's not putting himself in a position to get injured. Maybe it's totally possible. But the way I have to look at things uh, is that, like, you know, maybe it does, and you just have to discount that a little bit. we got to look at his per-game stats, and they're really unimpressive. He's 13th on my board. He comes in at 8 bucks. Um, I will never own Paul Goldschmidt uh, again, probably, um, which sucks because I love, I love watching him. He's a cool dude. Um, I had him at peak value on point in one league. And, uh, that was like when I was like kind of getting in and out of like whether I cared about baseball at all and watching a first baseman, like steal bags and hit homers was super exciting. Um, but you know, it's just really fr- difficult to figure out guys like him for me. Am I doing it right? Sort of mindset. And just, yeah. And just real quick, I'm going to throw one word out there about guys like him. Eric Hosmer's another, the word that I've started using a lot accumulator, right? Yeah. Plays that's a lot the word of games. I use too. Yeah that that's what they are. So those guys are difficult to rank. So I, I think you brought up a good point, Scott, when you were talking about league formats, and I'd kind of like to segue into that as a discussion point. I, there's a lot of other guys that we could talk about. Um, but uh, I, I think one of the things that doesn't 
always get brought up is, you know, okay, so you're talking about 12 team ranks. I'm playing in a 15 team roto league or, uh, you know, I've got 10 guys and it's a shallow league. How does this help me uh, in that particular situation? So what are some of the league formats where, um, you know, that you think are are strong? What are some of the weaknesses? What are some of the things you love? What are some of the things that you you hate as uh, as rankers and auction estimators? Uh, Let's let's switch the conversation over to how does that translate to league formats specifically? One thing that I do want to call out is is a thing I really like, which I know a lot of people play, and that doesn't necessarily get the love from the fantasy community, is points leagues, right? So there's actually a lot of fun to be had in points leagues. Number one, if you've played any fantasy sport, you already know how it works, mm-hmm. right? You want the guys to score the most points. And I love that it actually sort of distills down to simple points what what is good, right? And actually, it does... So almost correlate in many ways more to the real game than Roto or categories does because newsflash stolen bases aren't worth that many wins. They're not that valuable in terms of winning baseball games, right? A in fan, like in a categories league, a single and a stolen base is infinitely more valuable than a double, right? Especially if nobody's on base. Right? Oh yeah, because, for sure. Yeah. But in real life, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. A double is better. <laughs> because there was way less risk to make it happen, right? And even if there are runners on base, like a single and then a steal is almost always worth less than a double because the double has more chances to drive in more runners, more good things can happen than on the single and the the stolen base. And, and if you go into like linear weights and things, you start to see that doubles are almost always better, right? So I, I really like points fantasy leagues for that. And also it's just more accessible. And one of the things that's hard when you're playing fantasy baseball is finding 12 to 15 other people to play in your Mm -hmm. league, right? With points, you can actually do it, right? Because you don't have to teach anybody a whole lot about how the game works. It's like, Hey, look for the guys that score lots of points. Okay. And and you can play with the points values to make sure it's balanced. You know, a lot of the old school points leagues are heavily pitcher favored because Mm -hmm. you basically get a point per out. And they accumulate a whole ton. Like the original accumulator to me was always Clayton Richard in points leagues. He was always like really high on the on things because he was going to pitch like a bazillion innings and they weren't going to be that good, but outs are worth points. And he'd end the season with a bunch of points, even if he never scored that many from week to week. But points leagues are something that, that maybe don't get enough, don't get enough love, which is weird because that's the most common format. Yeah. across all and it's not particularly close like points leave more people play points leagues than anything else and yet we don't talk about it much it is really cool it's just that like it's not the traditional way we play and also like certain things stop mattering like in most points leagues stolen bases just don't move the needle much like mondesi's value in most points leagues is nothing close to what it is in roto because you're not trying to get steals you're trying to get points and it's a lot easier to get points from guys who just hit Mm-hmm. And Mondesi doesn't hit so well. Yeah, I, I play in Odd New League, um, which uh, is Odd New Points, I will specifically say. Um, and, and it's deeper. It does kind of have that level of depth. And Odd New has a lot of really funky um, things that make it hard in other ways. So, like, you could do points in some really cool ways if you want to be, like, cool. Uh, but I, I agree with you in that, like, we probably should care about them more as analysts. ESPN pushes them on their users a lot. So we end up with a huge, like, layman points base that, like, you know, like the cool guys in the room don't want to talk about, but it's a thing. And I think a lot of the CVS analysts, because they know that people play them and up talking about them a little bit more than you would hear from like 
if you're just listening to like some dudes like us talking. So I want to recognize like why that happens and say like, yeah, talking to people who want to play and want to just barely get their foot in the door. Very important. Very, very important. Um, I don't always love how they can get set up. Um, I agree with you about pictures. And I think this is like the sort of like um, other thing you got to consider is like, how do I make sure that all of my league mates are still playing the game at the end of the year? Um, how do I make sure that I want to play the game all year long? I, right. I had teams last year that I straight up stopped caring about and didn't set my lineups in for a couple weeks. And Ooh. I'm not afraid to admit that. No, like I'm not afraid to admit <laughs> that like I just had a rough year last year, but also just I had some weeks where like the fifth team that I need to set every morning got really frustrating. Um, yeah. So finding ways to make sure that things stay less stale really important i think that the big thing though is just you got to play with fun people i want to set my lineups more if i know that i'm going up against someone i i I, like want to beat so um for those of you guys who like tend to play a lot of really disconnected stuff maybe you're like random entries into like a tgfbi or maybe it's just like a random entry into a free espn league no matter where that is in between i'm sure you guys have probably felt a similar sort of way about like just not caring about something once you're like a little bit out of it um, so I think that's kind of like an unsaid thing. You got to find ways to keep things interesting, and that's why Dynasty is actually a really good way to care about fantasy baseball, even if it's harder. It's just because you have to care about your team so much longer, you're going to continue to make good decisions. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to set up an ideal league. It is actually like probably the Otney league that I didn't set my lineups in a couple times last year. Um, I have like really cheap Shane Bieber in that league. I have cheap U Darvish in that league. I have like a killer pitching staff, and I just totally disrespected it in some ways last year so i'm glad you talked about dynasty uh just because one it is a format that i think a lot of people like and i just to play on that a little bit the one thing i want to make sure people understand is dynasty is often harder than redraft because you have more things to think about but don't make the mistake of thinking that deeper leagues are necessarily harder than shallow ones right because Mm -hmm. It's just a different skill set. In a deep league, you need to know about more players because the replacement level is so low. But in a shallow league, it can be just as difficult because you have to identify how you're going to get the most stats out of a bunch of guys who we all know are good, right? So you're all dealing with a very small pool of players. And for example, in 18 league, and I talk about this a little bit in an article I actually wrote about a year ago. Uh, about how to manage your draft for an 8, 12, and 15-team league. And the way it works is those 18 leagues aren't easier. They're actually just as difficult because you need to Mm -hmm. be able to manage, like, oh, crap, like, that sleeper is never going to be relevant in Mm 8, right? Like, that guy, like, I can like John Birdie all I want. He is never relevant in 18-team league unless you start a bazillion guys, (laughs) right? It's just, it's not going to happen. Now, Again, John Birdie could prove me wrong. I'm sure he's a fine man, fine baseball player, has all kinds of potential in his life. But projection-wise, he is never going to be relevant projection-wise in an 18 league. So I have to know how to squeeze all the little bits of value out here and there and you know, plant my flag in guys. I'm like, this guy's going to outdo the projections and this guy's going to be someone who is better than others think. And I know the margins are going to be so, so tight because we all have good players, every one of us, right? Because there's only eight teams. There's plenty of players to go around. So something I just want to call out is when you're dealing with league format, don't don't poo-poo a league just because it's shallow. You can still have a lot of fun mm-hmm. in shallow leagues. Oh, for sure, for sure. I, I back when I still played fantasy football, and I don't know it's a swear word in some places, I played in a six team league once, um, uh, with really deep benches though. Um, so the 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 goal was like really much just like you gotta own everybody. Um, but like you gotta make tough choices. Um, and those tough choices were really dumb, honestly, but like 
you know, benches matter too. And um, there, there are a lot of different ways to make things fun. I, I think the big thing that it, that I want people to do in a league, no matter what, though, is to like have to make choices um, and like want to make them. Um, so I, I do think that uh, benches make things fun because like day to day, like you're hounding Scott on Twitter, you know, am I going to start uh, Josh Naylor today? Yes or no? Yes, you are, by the way. You better be starting Josh Naylor and drafting him. Um, <laughs> He's ranked. I ranked him. <laughs> Good. Got him in there. I, I, love, I love him. Um, and I I think that one of the things that's really important, regardless of how you are evaluating people, though, is like, you know, like, if you're listening to people like us who are putting tools together, um, we might be telling you, like, in your case, I imagine you're telling me, like, why you'd be ranking someone somewhere. I might be telling you why I disregard, disregard my own... Uh, Values disregard a dis turn people into pumpkins. I don't know, but yeah, like Josh Naylor, not going to come out all that great in my projections. I don't think because they're based off of past information. That's just a little bit funky for him, but like, yeah, let's see how many negative dollars he is here. Negative 11. I'm going to own him in 12 team <laughs> leagues. Anyway, I'll, I'll disregard stuff because it's important to listen to some of the human aspects of things too. All right. Well, I would like to just say thank you both for uh, this conversation. Um, I think it's really important for people at home to understand how to use the tools. The tools being available is step one, right? Step two is really being knowledgeable about how to use them. And uh, I thank both of you for for sharing that, that information and that knowledge and that context. I think the context is huge. Uh, But that's going to bring us to the end of our episode here. We've been talking about this for an hour already. It's gone by really, really quickly. Uh, But before I let you go, Scott, number one, thank you so much for being part of our our podcast here today. Uh, Talk a little bit about the other pods that you're part of. Plug a little bit of what you're doing and let the people at home know where they can find you. Yeah, sure. So I'll start with that. You can find me on Twitter at if the chew fits. So that's if the chew C H U fits, because when you have a last name like this, you just use puns whenever you possibly can. <laughs> so that's where you can find me. Um, I've got two podcasts that are going right now. We've got PL shorts, which is, I mean, these are 15 minutes. Like we've got them going right now. They're going to be a little bit of DFS, a little bit of news, a little bit of like just things to think about for the, your lineups. It comes out twice a week. And actually right now we're talking about some, some of our favorite bets, like futures bets, like who's going to win. You know, we just talked about AL central who, who would we like as a bet for the AL central, not just who's going to win, but who's getting the best odds. We also talked a little bit about home run futures, right? So who do you like as a pick where, you know, if I think I'm going to win it, I, you know, Mike Trout is always the right bet for like just about any stat, but Eugenio Suarez is getting great odds. It seems like a decent place to put some money, right? Like plus 2,200. So like 22 to one on your money. Why not? Right. Eugenio Suarez can totally hit 50 home runs. So that's what I'm working on. Of course, during, uh, I, I manage the going deep section here at pitcher list, but I don't actually write them very often because I'm not that good at it, <laughs> but uh, I do, I do work on lots of things. And I think the last thing I want to say is I just want to share a quote from one of my favorite guys. His name's Rudy Gamble. He's over at Razball. Uh, and he had a really good point about value. And it's the only reason I'm, I'm making you like, wait for me to tell you this because it, it is about value and it was really good. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be saying the whole quote. I'm going to skip a chunk of it, but it's essentially the concept of value Uh, And this is about value drafting and thinking that you should always pick the best value on the board at any given time. It says the concept of value is underpinned by the massive ego of thinking one's rankings are so good that they could win just by exploiting the other's drafters inefficiencies. Do you go to the supermarket with a plan or do you just buy whatever's on sale? Right? So we talked a lot about value today and value is really important, but don't think that you can just go into your draft and keep trying to find the best value. That's not how this works. You need to have a plan, right? 
you don't win the league by getting the best value in your draft picks, right? You win the league by getting the most stats, right? You need the most stats to win, mm-hmm. not the most value. And, and so I, I, I just thought it's really important to sort of wrap with, I love talking about value. It's extremely important in the draft. It is not the only thing. At the end of the day, you still need the most stats to win. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I know I saw that on, on Twitter too. I thought it was a really great way to kind of wrap that up. You don't want to go shop the bargain aisle and try and make a nice, uh, you know, four course dinner out of what you're going to get there. So it's a fantastic point. Uh, Alex, any uh, final words here? I want to be Rudy Gamble when I grow up. <laughs> All right. He, he's so, he's so great. I mean, I got to play poker with him as part of like the pitchless. He's so awesome. He, he's a really cool guy. He's really good at poker. He's like always at like the final table for these. Like, I guess it's cause he's smart or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know anything about being, I smart, was out so. really early. So I think it's more yeah. than just that. Um, no, wait, actually, I'm not smart when it comes to poker. Never mind, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> it's a totally different <laughs> skill set. But yeah, he, he's he's a really great guy, and I think it's just a really important point that he makes, a guy who's been very good at fantasy baseball for a very long time, talking about how he doesn't just go in and say, I'm going to find the best value. Well, no, I'm, I'm going to try to get the most stats. And in that process, I will also find value. But that's not the point. It, it's to get the best stats. It's myopic to only look at one element or one facet, right? And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before about adaptability. If you're not willing to zig when everybody else is zagging or, or make the move that you need for your team or your roster, you're going to wind up with holes. And, and value isn't going to mean much if the other teams are scoring more points or getting more stats. Alex, thank you uh, again for uh, all of your contributions with the auction estimator. And uh, if you could go ahead and uh, follow up and let the people know where they can find us. Well, they can find you on Twitter at the corked mat. I'm on Twitter at chase underscore rate. And most importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter at Dugout Study Hall, where you can send us some questions. Please be sure to subscribe to the Pitcherless podcast feed if you haven't done that already. Leave us a good review if you can be so kind. And if you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. And that's it for me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time.